together. Hey, uh, so we wrapped up our sermon series on surrender. It was wonderful. It was good. Uh, that's going to be our theme throughout the year, so we're going to kind of bounce back and talk about surrender. Uh, I don't know if you picked it up, but it seems like surrender is a foundational principle to living a life that is pursuing Jesus, that is following him. So we, we become more and more mature as we yield ourselves to Jesus, as we surrender to him. And so we're going to keep talking about that. And I'm so thankful that the Lord relented from these messages, messages about surrender to call us into humility. Isn't that just refreshing <laughs> that he, he said, enough surrender, humble yourselves in my sight. Isn't that, I just had to laugh about that because this, this message, this series was waiting uh, since like the fall. Remember we did Philippians 1 and I said we're going to kind of march through Philippians here in the future. We had Advent and then I was praying about this in January and the Lord said no, you need to talk about surrender. So then we did that and now we're, now we're here landing back at humility. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, I can tell you, I guess I would just give testimony personally that um, probably around 2007, that's a while ago now, um, I had not been a Christian for very long, about six and a half years, and the Lord started to work this concept into my life, this call of humility, and, and it was very transforming, and it, at first it was very challenging, but then it became very life-giving, and it became something that created a, a wholeness in me that I had longed for, and so maybe you know this concept, and and maybe you don't, but I, I can tell you this, that if you're willing to say yes to God in this, this will cultivate wonderful, delightful things in your heart as you stick with it. So I'd just like to encourage you to consider what the Lord is calling you to in this time where we talk about humility uh, in chapter 2 here. So uh, it's always fun to, uh, to play a game in church, isn't it? Uh, so I'm thinking that maybe we can play this game. Uh, what makes it grow or go? Okay, so I'm going to show you a picture, and then I want you to think for just a half a second, because otherwise the nerds are going to beat you to the answer, and, and shout out uh, what makes it grow or go. Ready? One, two, three. Fire. Okay, that is a fire. Good job. Yeah. And Okay. Wood makes it grow and go. What else? Oxygen, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll just, is wood the only substance that burns? No, gasoline. Some of you are wild. I'm not inviting you to my backyard. Chris, let's make this fire bigger. Gasoline will make the fire bigger, that's true. But it needs fuel, right? It needs fuel and oxygen, right? And without those two things, what's going to happen to the fire? It's going to die. Okay, it's going to go down. All right, ready? One, two, three gasoline this is the one for gasoline that's right good gasoline and will gasoline alone work what else does it need air or oxygen specifically oxygen right so yeah yeah and some of you are like spark right mechanics are like spark fuel oxygen right you know that the trinity of making the hemi go right you're like yes more power right i wish i had the sound effect that this engine made right this is this kind of makes my heart rumble with joy, and I sing praise the name of Jesus inside, and the gas goes, rum, rum, right? That's good. That's good stuff right there. Okay, how about this one? What makes it grow or go? Okay, water, sun, soil. Okay, so these are a little more complicated. These food, nutrients, and then it needs water. Anybody grow orchids? How much water do orchids need? A lot, but... The misting, oh, they don't need water in the soil. They need mist, right? They need to glisten. Yeah, they like the humidity, right? The hot shower, that's a good tip right there from the front row. If you've got an orchid, you could take it in the shower with you. I, you could probably also <laughs> sing songs to it and then get it back in the sun to dry out. That's normal, okay? That's normal. That's good. That's how I like that. We want to love our houseplants. Loved houseplants live well. Okay, all right, good, good, all right. Now this, uh, one, two, three, go. Food, food love, toys, sugar, yeah, baby, that's, the, yeah. I saw this, I thought peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, that's what, yeah, education. Oh, imagination. I, Pink Floyd popped in my head. I was like, we don't need no. Yeah, no, but all right. Imagination, opportunity. How, how about discipline? Mm, my children love discipline. They, when I say it, they say, 
Thank you for the life-giving word of no, Father. I love it when I do extra chores for you. <laughs> that was a fish story, not a fib, can't we? <laughs> Their love for discipline is this big. <laughs> I know because they get loud when the discipline happens. That's how I know that they love it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, now, one, two, three, go. Uh, the word of, this, is the old, this was uh, how we looked from the road about seven years ago. I don't know how to tell Google Maps that we painted our building. But, so the, the word of God, prayer, people, grace, Christ, community, Money. <laughs> I got to tell you, sometimes churches grow better without money. I don't know why. Uh, it's the right balance. Unity. Trinity. Okay, good. The presence of the Lord. So not just Christ, but the Father and the Holy Spirit working in the church. That's good. Fellowship. Love. Discipline. All the church said amen to discipline, didn't we? <laughs> Cookies and coffee in the foyer. Good, okay, good, good, good. Lots of things that make the church grow. Well, today we're going to talk about, I already spilled the beans, but we're going to talk about something that makes the church grow even more than the rest of these, and that is humility. Maybe not more than Jesus. Sorry, Jesus. <laughs> but, but it's up there. I, I think that it's the, one of the number one factors that make a church grow is humility in the life of those who believe in Jesus. Because sometimes growth isn't just about numbers. It's actually about depth. And then when we grow in depth and health in our relationship with Christ, then the rest tends to flow. And Jesus said it like this, seek first the kingdom of God, so the reign of Christ in your life and his righteousness. And then all of these things will be added unto you. And so all of those things that we named, you know, the coffee, the fellowship, the love, the unity, all of that is very good, uh, but the foundation of that tends to rest on our individual humility in Christ. So as we get into that, uh, let's pray that the Lord would bless our time of learning. Uh, Father, we just thank you. We thank you for gathering us together today. We thank you for our time in worship. Father, we thank you for the opportunities that you've given us. Lord, I'm, I'm blown away that you moved in these people to purchase over 200 Bibles for our brothers and sisters in Malawi, whom not having seen or known, they chose to love. That's from you, Father. I'm thankful for this series on humility and the journey, the downward journey, and the joy that will come from that as we pursue the path of Jesus this month. Father, bless our time of learning. Holy Spirit, raise up your truth in our hearts as the standard. Convict us of our sin, our self-righteousness, Help us to hear you and grow us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're pursuing uh, God's truth in Philippians 2, not just making up the concept of humility, uh, and I want you to know that so you don't hate me. All right. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation, or your translation might say comfort of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, by having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves, looking out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So let's define humility quickly. Uh, humility is a modest or low view of oneself. Uh, that's from the Oxford Online Dictionary. So that's kind of a standard definition out there in the world. But I think we can add to that. So as we define biblical terms, it's good to use biblical concepts and, and biblical truth to explain that. Uh, so Romans 12:3 says, each one of us must think soberly about ourselves, not more highly than we ought, but according to the grace of of God that has been given to you, okay? So we need to think rightly of ourselves in light of the grace of God. Now that starts with some basic truth, like 
Why did we need Jesus? Because we're imperfect, right? We're, we're not perfect. We, we have sinned. We, we've fallen short of the glory of God. That's a humbling concept right off the bat, right? And so when we face things in life, we face it with this knowledge that we are not perfect, but God is good and great and can lead us through this. We also think of ourselves according to not just the mercy given to us, but the grace. Because each of you, if you put your faith in Jesus, you've been made new. You're a new creation. The sin that defined you before no longer defines you. Now the work of Christ in you is defining you, which again puts down the self-will and elevates God's will. And then God has gifted you, gifted you for service, right? And so we want to think of ourselves rightly in Christ. That's part of humility. Next, the humility, according to Philippians, we're going to explore this today, is a disposition of priority to others. A disposition of priority to others. So disposition is like how you look at things, and it's even how you look, right? Have you ever met somebody with a sour disposition? What's that like? That's just wonderful, right? When your barista has a sour disposition, you wonder like, did I just order a bad drink? Are they going to spit in that thing? Like, is this, is this wrong? You're like putting extra money in the tip jar. Or not. Maybe you're like, do they need a better day? Do they need a worse day? What's going on, right? Like, you're wondering what's happening with you that there's this sour disposition. So it's this, not just this disposition of priority to others in number, but it's the, the way you cultivate yourself towards them. You're not sour about it. You're, you're happy about it. You're, you're pursuing their good, and, and it's starting to feel good inside. Well, let's talk about how this humility uh, grows within us and what it looks like, and we're going to do this for the next few weeks through Philippians 2. Uh, first of all, we see in Philippians 1, or 2, 1, pardon me, 1, 1, gosh, Philippians 2, 1, that humility is the spiritual response to who God is and what God has done. 1, 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. In other words, the Holy Spirit isn't saying, hey, look at yourself and, and measure if you're humble. Look in the mirror and figure out if there's anything wrong with you. Instead, it's look to the Lord. What have you experienced from Him? What is He like? This if statement is called a first-class conditional statement. That's, that's good, right? We've been upgraded to a first-class conditional statement. It's not basic economy for you today. It's the deluxe treatment. And this means that there is a guarantee of the thing that we're talking about. Paul is not wondering, has this ever happened to you? Remember just the kids a minute ago, I was like, there's this verse in the Bible that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And they were like, Sawyer, I have no idea what you're talking about right now even, right? Like, it's not in that place. I love that precocious honesty, by the way. So good for my heart. Uh, sometimes we're like that with the Lord, but this is not what Paul is saying. He's saying, you have encountered this. He knows the Philippian church. I know many of you have encountered this. I've talked to you about your testimony. I, I've seen God's work in you, and, and when I talk about the love of Christ, you're like, amen, that love of Jesus, how it is impacted me so much. I've, I've seen how the love of Christ works in your life so that when you're talking about Jesus, some people are like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'd like to, right? Because it evidences itself in the way that it has changed you and transformed you. It's, it's an overwhelming and it's a never-ending love that, that transforms us from the inside out. And so humility is not based on who we are, but instead it's based on who God is and what He has done. You know what Romans 12, 1 and 2 calls that? worship. That means humility is your reasonable spiritual action of worship, responding to who God is, worshiping God, first of all, with your perspective, the way you view him, the way you view yourself. Well, let's kind of unpack these statements that he's saying, if there is any of that. First of all, let's talk about the encouragement of Christ. Is Jesus encouraging I think Jesus was highly encouraging. Man, when I, look at, when I look at the scriptures, when I read the gospels and I see Jesus' interaction with people, I just, I'm amazed at how encouraging, how caring, how loving he was to people, how approachable, how approachable he was to people. It wasn't that Jesus was predictable. It wasn't that Jesus was safe like a pillow is safe when it's under your head, not over your head. It's that even though he's powerful, he's good. 
And so he's trustworthy. He's able to be trusted. Maybe you haven't read the Gospels. Maybe you have. I think about the first time I believed, the, I believed Jesus and I read the Gospels. I just kept having to pick up my jaw from the table. He didn't. He, the lepers came out of their, their caves and he did what? He didn't run the other way. They have cooties. I mean, they, they seriously, they could kill you just by touching you. It, it's communicable, this bacteria that they have. And no one could touch them. And Jesus touched the untouchables. And he touched them with love. His touch, it restored them. And Jesus taught people. He said that they did, it says that he didn't teach in the way that everybody else taught with. He, he taught with authority and he taught with truth. And that truth was transforming to them in the, in the way that he articulated it and explained it to them. God became accessible to them through his explanation, both in words and deeds. I remember particularly just knowing how women have been treated historically. It's just remarkable how Jesus treated women in the Gospels with dignity, with respect, with deep value. All women. Remember the story of Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus is invited to this Pharisee's house. If you think Pharisee, think extremely religious person who is proud of their religiosity and thinks that other people need to be as good as them so that the world can get better. You've never met a person like that, I'm sure. And you probably never looked at one in the mirror, right? Because you're better than that. And, and so Jesus went to this guy's house. And, and, and when this happens, when you're hanging out with a religious person, what are they doing to you? They're measuring you, they're weighing you, and they're judging you. And who are they comparing you to? Themselves. It's really wild because they're the standard of goodness in the world. So it's this really wild situation because the actual standard of goodness in the world is sitting across or next to this puffed-up person filled with pride who has a broken measure of goodness in the world, and they're having this conversation, right? And in the midst of this conversation, which was probably in the courtyard, which maybe was accessible through whatever means, this woman comes up. And she's not a reputable woman. Now, she works in the sex trade, the sacred, sacred sex trade. And I know sacred probably sounds like a weird word to apply to that, but the reality is that for thousands of years, humans have worshipped sexuality. And it feels like a very holy thing. Even in its brokenness, we elevate it above so many other things. And so she is there. And why is she in the sex trade? Because there's a market for it, right? There's people who, who pursue that, and, and that's her means, her means of sustenance. Now, if you, if you know anything about the sex trade, you know how degrading it is to the participants, but especially to the people who work in it. It's like sandpaper to the soul. It just destroys you, but from the inside out, right? And she has encountered Jesus, and she's taken everything that she has earned, everything that she's been able to scrape together and she buys this. Wait, 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 I'm mixing stories. She does, this is the wrong one. No perfume in this story. She shows up. We're rewinding that. She shows up, and she goes to Jesus' feet, and she starts weeping, weeping publicly over Jesus' feet, and, and it says that her tears make his feet wet. So this is not like silent weeping. This is an ugly cry, right? Like this is, this is a very, very wet thing going on at this moment, and, and then she starts taking her hair and she starts drying Jesus' feet. And the hair was a symbol of intimacy, and, and it was viewed as a very private thing. And so there's this intimate connection that's making everybody uncomfortable because it's, it's way too flirtatious for everybody else's comfort level. And then she starts kissing. She starts kissing the Pharisees' feet. And why, why would, or not, not the Pharisees' feet, Jesus' feet. <laughs> Somebody give me some more coffee or less coffee, I don't know. Lord help. Jesus' feet. The Pharisee gets really uncomfortable and he starts making statements of condemnation and judgment. But Jesus doesn't just stop at receiving this act of worship. He defends her and he lifts her up and he tells this parable about love and forgiveness and he measures rightly the situation. The conclusion of the, Pharisee, the, the parable is that the one who loves much has been forgiven much, but the one who has forgiven little loves little. And the Pharisee doesn't realize the depth of the forgiveness that he needs. He doesn't understand his brokenness. He doesn't think of himself in a sober mind. 
doesn't think of himself rightly. And so Jesus is just so tender and encouraging. He lifts her up. How about Zacchaeus? We've talked about this in recent weeks, but Zacchaeus is a tax collector, which means he has put a bid into the Roman Empire to betray his people. Can you imagine if there was somebody who lived in Chinook by the bridge and they put a bid into Washington, D.C. for the right to implement taxes over us and that how they worked is that they told Washington, D.C. how much they think they could get out of us collectively and then they get to skim a little bit off the top of that in addition to that. And their whole life is built on robbing from you, robbing from all of us collectively. How much do you think we'd like that person? Not very much, right? That, that person's name would probably genuinely be a curse word in our hearts. Like, you're just like Tim. Just take all our money all the time. Thieving Tim loves his taxes. Hate that Tim. There's no Tims in here, right? Are we Tim free today? Maybe. Oh, Timmy, you're good. I love you, Timmy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so hard. If you use a foreign name, it's wrong. If you just, yeah, it's so challenging. I, anyways, I apologize, Timmy. You just imagine that, right? Well, that, that's what Zacchaeus was. He, he was a betrayer and a thief, and, and he took life from others to get his own life. And, and he didn't just take a little. He didn't just take enough. He took enough that his life was opulent, insanely opulent. So he was greedy. Wow, what a guy. Love that Zacchaeus guy. Well, Jesus is walking to Jericho, and, and Zacchaeus was short, and so he had to climb up a tree to see Jesus wanted to see Jesus, and Jesus stopped and looked at him, looked at Zacchaeus, and called out his name. Can you imagine what Zacchaeus felt in that moment? Not good. Jesus called out those in authority who were abusive and destructive with the way that they wielded authority. I I think that's encouraging personally, that God will judge the high, the proud, the lifted up who are lifted up inappropriately, that he will make things right but he meets, meets Zacchaeus with mercy. He says, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to come to your house today. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to enter into your world. He knew that there was something in Zacchaeus that would respond to him, and Zacchaeus did respond to him. In Romans, it says that the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Jesus was kind to Zacchaeus in his sinfulness. He met him in his place of need. He pushed past the pride and called Zacchaeus to something greater. And what did Zacchaeus do? Anybody know the story? Zacchaeus repented. I'll give it all back. I'll pay it back even more than that. I'll pay it back tenfold. I was terrible before, but Jesus, you have shown me a better way. I want to be a new kind of human, the kind of human that you are calling me to be. But Jesus' words are also encouraging. When we read Jesus' words, there's this sense that he's calling us to be something greater, that he's calling something deep from deep within us to be better, to to do and to know and to be more than we know on our own through fellowship with God. There's this message that he has that you can be reconciled to God the Father through me that restores worth to each and every human heart. And so Jesus' teachings are encouraging. And Jesus' example is encouraging. Jesus' disciples often fought about who was the best, who was the greatest, which is rare. No one ever is concerned about comparing themselves to other people. We never, ever, ever measure our worth based on the people that we can find that are slightly less than us, right? You too? Good. I'm glad to hear that. But the disciples did that for some reason. Jesus was constantly trying to tell them it's not about being better, it's about being a greater servant. He was very clear on that. And just before Jesus died, he was hanging out with his disciples. They were about to celebrate the Passover, and there was no one to wash their feet. Now, the deal is, is that in the first century, no one wore fancy kicks, right? Everybody had sandals, or they were barefoot. And they walked in the same place as the camels and the donkeys and the slop from the house got tossed. And so the roads were relatively filthy, which meant that as you were walking, you weren't just getting dusty. You were getting soiled in a gross way, and your feet would have been extremely funky. Not good, right? And so as you go in to eat, there's kind of an issue. It's a hygiene issue. We need to wash our feet. It's very humbling to wash your feet. It's very humbling to be the foot washer. But Jesus, instead of making one of his disciples the foot washer, he decides that he's going to be the foot washer. It says that he took off his outer garment, his tunic, which was 
a very nice tunic, it says in other places. It was given to him by a wealthy man. It was the fanciest tunic. It was made from one solid thread through the whole thing. It's a really incredible thing. He took that off. He took off the symbol of his richness and glory, which he deserved, and he took on the form of a servant. And he wrapped himself in a towel. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. He began to explain to them that I am serving you in this way. And if I, your master, am serving you in this way, then you also too ought to be servants. It was his example that was encouraging. Jesus wasn't the kind of leader that says, go and do. It's the kind of leader that says, come and follow. I will show you the way. He's the leader that's shoulder to shoulder with you, heartbeat to heartbeat with you, walking with you every step of the way. The kind of leader that inspires courage. The kind of leader that calls people to genuine greatness. Then he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, poured out for you. This is a different kind of encouragement. It's an encouragement that causes stillness because you realize that the Son of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the most glorious figure in all of history, saying, I will take your place. I will pay your penalty. I will stand in the gap. And I will give you what I deserve because I love you. That sort of love is the deepest encouragement that I have ever met. Jesus tells his disciples in the same scene, greater love has no one than he who would lay down his life for his friends. It's the encouragement of love in Christ. And it amazes me. And it doesn't stop before the cross. Just remember Jesus on the cross in the agony of death, excruciating pain, the definition of excruciating pain. What does he do? He says just a few things. Some of what he says is stuff like, Father, light them up because they're sons of guns. No, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're just ignorant children, Father. But also, looking at his mother, what does he say? Woman, here is your son. Looking to John, the disciple. Son, here is your mother. Restoring and caring for his mother in the midst of his pain. More love. And then after the resurrection. Now after the resurrection, what was Jesus imbued with? What did he receive from the Father? All authority in heaven and on earth. Eternal glory. A name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, what's going to happen? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The highest figure of all of history for all of eternity is Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son. But how does he meet Mary in the garden? How does he meet her? With humility. What does she, what does she confuse him for? The gardener. Are gardeners proud and lofty people? When you see gardeners, you're like, man, that guy's dressed to the nines. Look at that. He's got Carhartts on with potting soil on his shirt. Woo, look at him. He should, he should be on the red carpet. No, it's take that off before you get on my carpet. It's humility. It's It's literally soil-like. The definition of humility, hubris gone, just soil there. Wow. And she turns and she sees that it's him. She calls him rabbi. And there's tenderness. Why, Why did he choose to do that? Out of love, out of restoration, for the sake of encouragement. How does Jesus meet Thomas? We call him the doubter. I think he's just an early scientist. Touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. Why? Love. Because he wants to meet Thomas in his place of need. Having met Thomas in his deepest place of need, he's willing to go further still. That is encouragement in Christ. He's the Savior who will keep on giving. There is not an end to his encouraging love. How about the father's consoling love the father's consoling love now this comes from compassion god has deep compassion for you john 3:16 for who so loved the world for god the father so loved the world 
that he gave what? His only begotten Son. Uncreated, existing in Trinity with the Father, willing to be separated, willing to experience what they experienced. The Father did not suffer with Jesus like Jesus did, but he suffered nonetheless, didn't he? Because it breaks our hearts when our children suffer. We sing this song, it's a, it's a recent hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch, this wretch, his treasure. It's hard to say something greater than that. We can't measure this great love and there's deep comfort in it to know that God always has compassion on you, that he sees you and he knows you perfectly and there's no condemnation in him towards you when you're in Christ Jesus. And if you're not in Jesus, if you don't have faith yet, he also does not want to condemn you. He wants to build you up. He wants you to know everlasting life. He wants you to have abundant life in this earth. And he has things beyond your imagination prepared for you in glory. His mercy is never ending. Great is his faithfulness towards you. How good is it to know that that's the heart of the Father to you. That you don't have to fear because he is good. How about the fellowship of the Spirit? I'm amazed that God would choose to put his Holy Spirit in me and in you. Think about what the Holy Spirit is. In Genesis 1, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That Jesus spoke and the Spirit moved. All of Trinity was involved in creation. Is there a limit to the Spirit's power? The Spirit is everything God the Father and everything the Son is. Immeasurably awesome unable to be contained in time and space, eternal, transforming, always good. Where does the Holy Spirit choose to dwell? In us? In, in my 80 years? In my limited breath? In my limited thinking? In my falling short? That He would choose to fellowship with me, with you, faithfully. David had to pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me, we have to pray, help me, Father, to not quench your spirit. We don't live in fear of God removing his spirit, though. He has transformed us, and he will stay with us until the end. Isn't that wild? The Holy Spirit is always with you if you put your faith in Christ. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, you will remember, my dear friends, that the Holy Spirit during the present dispensation is revealed to us as the comforter. So some of you last week, I heard you wanted the quote on the screen longer. This is your opportunity to use your phone appropriately in church and to take a screenshot of the quote here because it's going to go away for the next part of the quote in just about five seconds when I stop rambling to cover for you taking out your phone. Okay, good. If the it is the Spirit's business to console and cheer the hearts of God's people. He does convince of sin. He does illuminate and instruct. But still the main part of his business lies in making glad the hearts of the renewed, in confirming the weak, which means to strengthen the weak, and lifting up all those that be bowed down. The fellowship of the Spirit is designed to make your heart glad, to strengthen you when you're weak, to lift you when you're humiliated and made low. Isn't that awesome? You know what this means? All of the Trinity is toward you and for you. This is why Paul concludes in Romans 8, if God is for me, then who can be against me? For I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? This isn't an if statement, it's a because statement. And it's a big because statement. It's better than a walk-off home run at the World Series. It's better than that Hemi engine. It's better than a double rainbow. It's, it's better than anything you can ever know to know the goodness of God towards you. And then this humility is formed in you as you pursue. No, no, no. Humility causes joy to abound. Pardon me. Flipping too fast. This is noteworthy. It's not happiness. It's joy. Anybody know the Constitution? At least the first part of it. What inalienable rights do we have? Maybe this is the Declaration of Independence. Life and liberty and the pursuit of what? Happiness. Do you know what they wanted to write in there before? They changed it, though. 
property, wealth, those guys, they were smart. We want stuff, God. And then they were like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound very good. Maybe happiness. Maybe we can all pursue happiness. Does pursuing happiness guarantee happiness? No, not at all. What is greater than happiness? Joy. Joy outlasts happiness. Joy, joy is there when your American dreams are smashed. Joy, joy is there when life is in the tubes. Joy can be there in the pits of sorrow. Joy can be there in the heights of happiness. Joy is something that springs from within and it's a gift from the Lord. And humility causes this joy to abound deeply. Joy is a sense of ongoing victory. How good does victory feel? Anybody remember their first victory on a sports team? Anybody who have a family who celebrated them really well? Man, I remember the first, it just felt like my heart was about to leap out of my chest, and I'm, I'm sure I've, I've confessed that I looked like a skeleton before. It probably looked like my heart was about to leap out of my chest. Nurses were on standby, right? There's just this welling up inside of this incredible zeal. Now, that was pride, right? That's not really the fullness of this joy. Because when we know our victory in Christ, it's a, it's a joy that doesn't end, and it, and it isn't capped by life's experiences, but instead conquers that is what humility brings us. It makes, us, makes it worth pursuing. Next week, we're going to talk about this a little more because sometimes we feel something else on the way into humility. Humility is formed in you as you pursue transformation in Christ. Humility is formed in you as you pursue transformation in Christ. I've got to talk to my editor. That's me. This is Philippians 2.2. I'm sorry, everybody. Philippians 2.2, not uh, Philippians 2.1. It says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, by having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, there's this incredible amount of unity, but it's unity that comes in four categories. Thinking, in loving, in integrity, and in the pursuits and goals of our lives. Thinking the same way. Thinking what way? This is challenging. If you go back to Philippians 1, Paul says, it is right for me to pray for you because I have this thought for you, this deep amount of fondness. It's the way that I consider you. It's thinking in the pattern of love. It's thinking with the fondness of Jesus. It's letting God's goodness cover over others. Literally, this is saying, look at your brothers and sisters in Christ with rose-colored glasses. Keep Jesus between you and them. Let there be a holy separation that Jesus fills in the gap. Now, this is incredibly important because the, the church is not full of hypocrites. The church is full of sinners who are being made saints every day. It's probably not the right way to say it. It's full of saints who are in the process of redemption and sanctification. There are no perfect people in church except for the Spirit of God. The rest of us, and we're trying awfully hard on our best days, and on our worst days, we're trying awfully hard in other ways, it's not so pretty in church all the time. People say and do terrible things to each other in Jesus' name, they think sometimes. And church hurt is a deep level of hurt. The remedy for that is this shield of faith that doesn't ascribe to them blame and condemnation. Instead, ascribes to them mercy and gives space for the Holy Spirit to work. So much strife in church happens when we decide that we get to be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. I, I am going to be the one to fix them. What? I, I can't even fix myself eight days a week. I have no hope of fixing you. Jesus is the one who's transforming you. Woe to me if I think that I get to be the one to fix you, to tell you what you've got coming, unless if it's that you've got hope in Christ coming. But that's what he says. So I think of you the way Jesus thinks of you. And I urge you to think of each other and myself in the way that Jesus thinks of each other. Next, transforming in your loving, having the same love. Uh, what love is that? It's the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's brotherly affection. It's moral commitment. It's perfect, unconditional love as formed in us by God. We cannot get there on our own. It's something that He produces in us. We need to ask Him to transform our love, our integrity, United in spirit. Now, we just talked about the spirit a moment ago, right? We talked about the fellowship of the spirit. But this isn't that spirit 
This is the soul. This is the fullness of who you are. It's saying no falseness in you about this. An unhypocritical approach to humility. Everything in me as much as possible pursuing everything that God has for me. We live such a fractured faith. Part of my day is for me. Part of my day is for Jesus. Part of my day is for my kids. May God work in us so that all of our days are for Him. That everything we have is for Him. That our whole soul is united in this and that we become united together. Would God produce an integrity in us of holy pursuits that we would lay down our own interests and take up His interest for His sake. Next, it's our goals and our pursuits. Intent on one purpose. What is the purpose for your life? What are your goals right now? What are you pursuing? We all have goals. We all have things that we want to do. Some of us as type A people, we probably have them written down somewhere. Our culture has gotten really weird. People are making manifestation lists. Wow, good luck with that. I'm going to write this down and I'm just going to think magic juju thoughts and I'm going to get what I want. Wow, that's wild, isn't it? Wish it worked that way. It probably does sometimes, but that's just luck, right? It's just God's providence working things out. We have our plans and our purposes. The Bible says that when we do that, God laughs. We give God a good chuckle sometimes with our plans and purposes. He has greater purposes for us. Purposes that are greater. Purpose of glory. Purpose of goodness. A purpose of love. Let's get intent on one purpose. You know, experts say that we can all only pursue one thing at a time. There's no such thing as multitasking. There's just confusion and chaos at that point in time. It's doing nothing really fast altogether. That's what multitasking is, genuinely. I, at least for me, maybe you're better than me. But God wants us to have one pursuit. I want you to think right now. Where might God be calling you to be reformed, renewed today? Is it your thinking? Is there somebody that you think lowly of, that you judge, that you condemn, that you have bitterness towards? Do you need to ask God to transform your thinking towards them? To put those Jesus-colored glasses on? To view them through the grace and mercy of Christ so that you can have a renewed affection and love for them? You know, affection does not stop from God because you sin. He does not stop loving you because you make mistakes. But we're so small and weak that we do that to ourselves and other people. Do you need God to transform the way that you love? Is your love in short supply? I have to admit that when I rely on myself, my love is in very short supply. It's a dandelion in September. It's not looking so good. Better than the grass around me, so I can boast. But not looking so good, right? I need to ask God to renew my love. Is it your integrity? Are your goals scattered all over the place? Are you not united in what you're pursuing, but instead fractured by anxieties and fears and hurt? Do you need to ask God to bring wholeness to your soul so that you can pursue His desires alone? Is it your pursuits and goals? Have you given yourself to many loves, many desires, instead of the one desire that makes life full? Ask the Holy Spirit in this moment. He will lead you out of love to become stronger in these areas because He is the one who is renewing you. We just went through this series on surrender. I can't make myself better spiritually. God causes the growth. I can submit to Him and I can invite Him in and He can begin to transform Take that moment now to pursue that thing that God is asking you to pursue with a moment of humility. Next, humility is expressed in how you consider others. It's the way that we think of others. It says consider others as more important than yourself. Still chapter one there, it's actually chapter two. Isn't it nice that Jesus baked into some humility for me today? Do nothing... <laughs> out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, many translators put a period there and make it a new sentence, but it's actually another phrase modifying this consideration, looking out not only for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. We view others as surpassing our own self-importance and interest. 
Now this consider is not actually think deeply about who they are and figure them out. It's actually a consideration of fondness. It's going to the ice cream section in the store. Anybody like going to the ice cream section in the store? Everything there is good, right? I have a deep fondness for the ice cream section. If I had enough freezer space, you could come to my house and select ice cream. It's good stuff. This is, this is how God wants our hearts to be when we walk into our church family reunion every week. All of you are like ice cream to my soul. I see you, and, and you're better than Tillamook chocolate peanut butter. You're, you're better than Briar's mint chocolate trip. You're amazing beyond pistachio. And that's saying something, right? Like, you guys matter, and my soul delights in you. And that's not from me. That's the work of Christ in me, because some of you are funky and rude and unloving. And then Jesus breaks my heart for you all over again, and I see you, and I say, my favorite. Can I just have a sample, a few seconds of saying hi, because they're refreshing to me. I consider them as surpassing myself. I'm not in love with the person in the mirror. I'm in love with the person of Jesus in you and through you. And so I consider you as more high than me. Do you have that in you? I'm not bragging here, guys. If it were just up to me, I wouldn't be here. It's hard. It hurts sometimes. I'm imperfect and you're imperfect. It's Jesus who has made me consider you as more important than me. It's a recognition that I am lesser, that you can be more. Too often in the 21st century, we import our notions into biblical texts. It's it's not about caring for self. There's no, there's no concern for self in this passage because it's not even talking about that. It's important to care for yourself. We could have a whole sermon series on self-care, and it would be wonderful because God wants you to care for yourself appropriately. But that's not what this is about. This is about this disposition towards other people that says your importance surpasses my own in my own heart. That's what this is saying. It's about valuing others. It's about Jesus' thoughts and perspectives being formed in us. I, th I think it might have seemed magical to meet Jesus. Have you ever met somebody who's magical to meet? Me too. It blow me away. It's not that he had the gravity of God. His glory was veiled, right? Jesus' glory was veiled as he walked on earth. He said he had the gravity of love. The gravity of love. The presence of humility. Genuine, humble, self-giving love. Humble doesn't always mean shabby. No, there's no such thing as shabby love. Have you ever encountered shabby love? That's not love. Love is not shabby. Love is opulent. It's a diamond in the rough. I'm not saying that it's always fancy. I'm just saying that it's a treasure, right? It's a treasure. Just imagine how glorious and loving it was when he touched the leper. How glorious and loving it was when he was roused in the boat and rebuked the storm. How glorious and loving it was when he fed the 5,000. How glorious and loving it was when he paused the procession and said, who has touched me because power has gone out from me. And as he talked to her. How glorious and loving it was when he sat down with his disciples and said, you don't understand my parables? How will you understand anything? Let me explain this to you. How glorious and loving it was on the way into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, how glorious and loving it was in the upper room when Passover was being celebrated, how glorious and loving it was when he cast out demons, when he corrected Pharisees, when he was on the cross. See, without humility, there's no genuine love, no glorious and divine love in our lives. Divine love was mysteriously, powerfully present and decided to put other people's needs above his own. And he does the same thing for you. And he wants to lead you in this sort of loving humility towards others. And so today, lay down self-interest, and lay down vain glory, and lay down selfish ambition, your own focus for your own needs, and trust these things to God. He has your interest in mind already. Lay down your comparison and your competition Lay down your self-judgment and your statements of shame and condemnation. Lay down gossip, withholding, 
and punishing. Lay down backbiting. Lay down fighting and bickering. Lay down grudges and bitterness. Maybe, maybe lay down isn't a strong enough term. Count yourself dead to those things. They've got the wrong address. You don't live there anymore. Return to sender. Cannot be received. No male receptacle for you, bitterness. No male receptacle for you, pride. Because only Jesus' love lives here. And then by that same power of death to self, take up humility so that you might learn to love a little bit today, more like Jesus. It's humility that makes the church grow. It grows in depth. It grows in richness. It grows in divine glory and goodness. It's the humility that causes the church to go because we become driven not by our own self-interest, our own pursuit of better sound systems or more comfortable chairs or softer cookies or richer coffee, but we're pursuing love and the greater things that God has for us. And it has to start with you. Because if you wait for it to start with me, it'll never form in you. Because you probably won't see it, unless if I'm boasting about it. So let's let humility start with us. Would you join me in a prayer for God to start humility in you today and this week with a united pursuit? Amen. Father, I hate to pray for humility, but I love the results of your work in my life. And I love your, your results of your work in these people. And so we pray, God, for humility. We pray, God, that you would lead us in the ways of your love, that we would be able to give up our pride, that we would have security in you so that we don't fear but instead we can rest in your goodness. Form the humbleness of Christ in us, Father. We are willing. We lay down our boasting. We lay down our walls that say that we're good enough. We lay down our fears and we invite you in. Transform us, Father, so that we would have your humility and not our own. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.